Hey everyone, welcome back to Mercury Dimes and the Men Who Love Them. Tonight we are recording episode 14, and this is a continuation of our series on the history of money. Our focus tonight is going to be on the history and evolution of currency and physical money within the United States specifically. Now before we get to that, we have another big first for the podcast this evening, and that is our first featured guest, highly requested of course he's joining us to discuss how to soda proof your gaming computer <laughs> he's joining us on our shiny rock of the week segment all right if you go ahead and introduce yourself or not introduce yourself use any name or cover name that you would like what's up i'm cameron here for shiny rock of the week awesome what a guy all right so what do you have for us what is your what is our shiny rock of the week and what is your hip measurement <laughs> we got a donk baby so this one, much like my ass, is a pretty chonk boy. Uh, we have a 2013 Canadian polar bear. It's a uh, one and a half ounces. The face value is eight dollars Canadian, so that's probably like two hundred thirty-five dollars and thirty-six cents American. On one side, <laughs> on one side you have a polar bear, Jay chillin', and the other side we have Queen Elizabeth II. Fun fact, I have a coin from, I think it's 1956, and she's on it, and I have a coin from 2021, and she is still on it. Illuminati confirmed. But one and a half ounces, that seems to be a rather unique uh, weight. Yeah, so this is part of the, um, oh boy, let me look the name. So this is part of the Wildlife series. Started out in 2013, or no, I'm sorry, 2011, I believe, and originally they were all one ounce coins. And then they started going to one and a half ounce. So they're the same size as a normal coin, but it's since it's an ounce and a half, it's uh, a lot thicker. Right. Okay. So where did you uh, so where, where did you find this from? Where, where did you uh, pick this up from? I got it on Provident. I saw it, thought it was unique enough to buy. Have you asked them why they haven't sponsored us yet? Uh, yes, and they ignored me and left me on red. Hmm. That's fair. Okay. So you say it was 2013, and then you mentioned it was part of the Wildlife series. So how long, or how, how large is this series or collection? So, uh, it started in 2010 with the Canadian Wolf, and then they did two per year in 2011, 2012, and then 2013, they released just one coin, and then they went to the coin and a half. Interesting. Who's it, who's it being done by? Is it being done by the Canadian Mint, or is it a, uh, a private shop? Yes, it's uh from the Canadian Royal Mint. Okay, cool. What is the or what did you pay for yours? Was it a pretty reasonable price wise, or was it was it a pretty high premium? So it was actually referenced in oh god, it might have been episode six. Hey, that somebody mentioned it. I think I paid seven bucks over spot value, which because of the uniqueness of it, I didn't think was that unreasonable. Sure. Sure. Question. If it's $7 over spot, does that mean it's $7 per ounce over spot? I would have to look at the price. That that seems that seems like most likely what the website would be telling him. So unless Cameron whipped out a calculator to give us that number, chances are probably just said $7 per ounce over spot. Interesting. Okay. All right. So then the most important question is, what does it taste like? Um, stale vagina. Uh, shout out to Slamber. <laughs> oh boy, what a legend! 
this guy. All right. Any other, any other follow-up questions? Why did you buy a coin with the Lizard Queen on it? Explain yourself, sir. Uh, so I kind of just wanted to get a coin from every country that has, like, a national mint. And unfortunately, Canada still puts her face on it for whatever reason. Ouchie. Although I guess that beats Tridue in blackface. <laughs> oh, God. I mean, if some, I'm, I'm pretty sure there's a coin out there somewhere with Trudeau in blackface. I would definitely buy that. Okay, yeah. Yeah, that's true. Is your next step going to be buying a uh, Soviet gold coin? You know, that'd be, that'd be pretty cool if I ever found that. They're on eBay. They're about 500 bucks, though. So uh... so how many countries, like, any idea how many countries are still putting out coins with Elizabeth's face on it? So I personally have one from Canada, one from Australia, and then I have Britain. And New Zealand as well. It's basically the Anglo sphere. Plus a whole bunch of little ones like Tokelau's an island. All the uh, little microstates that are protectorates of Britain and that uh, basically base their economy on having other people mint coin designs from. Right, okay. That is the polar bear ounce and a half coin from the Canadian Royal Mint. We will throw a link to that in the show notes. So tonight, we are talking about the history of American currency. Our main reference is going to be a, I think, rather well-done website by the U.S. Currency Education Program on uscurrency.gov. And we're going to kind of be jumping around a little bit because not all of these footnotes are super, super interesting. But to start off with, so at least according to the Smithsonian National Museum, paper currency in the U.S. first is known to have been created back all the way in 1690, before the U.S. existed as a country. And this was issued by the Massachusetts Bay Colony, apparently, to fund military expeditions. And at least according to this picture, it looks basically like a very small certificate with text, a seal, and signatures. I'm trying, to th- I'm trying to think of the uh, specific term for that kind of paper currency. They're calling it a colonial note. I'm not sure if... Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about like the, the, the stuff privately issued by banks. Bill of something. Bill of sale? Bill of trade? It, it was something we talked about in the history of money thing, but I can't, I can't remember the term right now. Oh, promissory note. That was it. Sorry. So then we jump forward in time to 1766. So this is back in the very early stages of the Revolutionary War, I would say. We have what's then or what's being considered or known as continental currency, which looks rather similar to like a maybe an old school stock certificate, maybe even more kind of similar to modern day diplomas, actually, just like a certificate, basically. But apparently certain designs of this continental currency already at this point were featuring illustrations from the American Revolution, basically. Now this, the example that's shown here does not really, I wouldn't say show anything relative to that kind of illustration, but it is interesting in that time period that there was already efforts being made to commemorate the Revolutionary War. Then 
we move forward to the Continental, Continental Congress issuing paper currency to finance the Revolutionary War. Now, without any kind of solid backing, with no real international backing, and with very little of any government or faith in the government, combined with apparently already, at that early stage, a rise in counterfeiting, this led to the phrase, not worth a continental. Honestly, the example of continental currency being shown there, that's really not hard to counterfeit. You could probably reproduce that with a million hours of Microsoft Paint. Well, I kind of skipped over this here, but apparently Ben Franklin was one of the first to realize, or one of the first major names to realize that counterfeiting was going to be a serious issue. So he had, according to this one section, he was creating patterns inspired by leaves, like tree leaves, where raised patterns were being introduced or being created on the paper money as a an extra level of complexity to try to uh, make counterfeiting harder to accomplish. So the next interesting tidbit here we have is that the first $2 notes are were continentals and were actually nine days older than America itself. On June 25th, 1776, the Continental Congress authorized issuance of the $2 denomination in bills of credit for the defense of America. The dollar sign was officially adopted by the U.S. in 1785. It's apparently an evolution of the Spanish-American figure for pesos. That is a combination of P and S. I also like how... I was like the second depiction of how the dollar sign with the two strikes through, at least allegedly evolved. I have no idea if this is real or not, but combining the U.S. to create the dollar sign with two vertical lines is kind of cool so if you don't uh if you don't put two vertical lines through your dollar signs you're a dirty spaniard i suppose all right and then next up we have our i mean at least my hero of the revolutionary war period what did alexander hamilton do what because you simp for central bankers all right uh 1791 alexander hamilton established the bank of the united states to uh finance government essentially similar to the Federal Reserve today. And that bank was the first of several in the country to issue private currencies as a, as obviously a, uh, this predates considerably the Federal Reserve being the only one able to initial, to uh, issue currency. I mean, at least they was nice of them to consider that a private entity at that point, you know, for as long as that lasted. But then this, this was followed up then very shortly thereafter in 1792, by Congress establishing the coinage system by passing the Mint Act. And this is also when we adopted the decimal system, apparently, for our currency. So that was one, you know, excellent decision, I would say. Pretty sure we beat the Brits to doing that by like a century. All right, then moving into the 1800s, apparently all the way back in 1813, there were already $5,000 treasury bearer notes. These were... Interesting because apparently James Madison's portrait was featured on them. I believe he was president during that that time as well, which is kind of strange to have a actual sitting president being put out on some kind of the current forms of money. Right? Wasn't he? He was president during the War of 1812. So I would say 13, he must have still been president then, right? 1809 to 1817. So yes, smack dab in the middle. Yeah, I'm glad that's not a thing anymore. We don't put sitting presidents on our money. I'm... Kind of, I like that idea. 
I think we should go back to not putting presidents on, on our money in general. Yeah, I don't, I don't hate that idea either. What, just like no, not, not people in general? Yeah, I, I, uh, I like the idealized versions of liberty. And even like the other virtues besides liberty. Oh, that's a very good idea. That's a very good point. Yeah, I do really like that as well. Or even just Mercury. I think Mercury should be on every single coin. Well, and actually, I'm not gonna. I'm not going to to give away the dirty secret of the podcast. All right. So next, then we have the greenbacks. So in or during the early stages of the Civil War, the American Civil War, that is, Congress issued or authorized the Treasury Department to issue non-interest bearing demand notes. These were subsequently nicknamed greenbacks because of the green ink on the back of the notes. Also, allegedly, all U.S. currency issued since 1861 remains valid and redeemable at full face value. Uh, that seems a bit of a stretch, but I mean, I guess it wouldn't be in anyone wouldn't be in the government's poor interest to do so because if you, I don't know, want to use a five dollar Civil War note to pay for gas. Good fucking luck with that. I mean, yes, you. Good luck trying to get people nowadays to even take modern two dollar bills as money. So, although I, I think you could get, I think you could sick the Secret Service and anyone who rejected your greenbacks, though, because if they are still legal tender, then it's not optional whether they accept them. I suppose. So, also, actually, continuing in that theme from the Madison line, apparently, the first ten dollar notes issued by the federal government are are the demand notes, which we just mentioned. The $10 notes featured Abraham Lincoln's portrait, as well as some fine line engraving and intricate geometric lathe patterns. So this was another president that had his face on money while he was currently in office. Each demand note was also immediately redeemable in gold or silver upon demand at seven specific banks around the nation. And these notes were issued between 1861 and 1862. I just want to ramble about Oh, we we aren't raising your taxes so much for this war. We're just inflating your money away during said war, which is totally not a tax, haha. Because if we tax you as much as as if if the taxes actually went up that high instead of just inflating money away, people would be would be rioting in the streets. I mean, I feel like there was plenty of rioting in the streets already during the Civil War, so yeah, I can kind of see the balancing act there. A, a better example would probably be like Vietnam or even World War II. Not that, you know, there was a shortage of rioting during the Vietnam War. All right. Anyway, rambling over. 1862, the uh, Congress authorizes a new class of currency known as United States notes as a successor to the demand notes. They, they replace the demand notes and continue to circulate into until 1971. These are essentially the uh, silver certificates that you may have seen floating around. 1863, Congress establishes a national banking system and authorizes the U.S. Department of the Treasury to oversee the issuance of national banknotes. The system sets federal guidelines for chartering and regulating national banks and authorizes those banks to issue national currency secured by the purchase of U.S. bonds. So those are essentially the uh, the varied reserve banks. New York Reserve Bank, Illinois, not Illinois, Chicago, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. So is this the first version, I guess, of the Federal Reserve? It seems like a precursor. The Federal Reserve wasn't actually chartered, I would say, until the beginning of the 20th century. 
Right. It was much. Lo- it was a lot later on, but this kind of seems like the first real overture in that direction. Yeah, because they're talking about the the it's, nat- it's national banks being controlled by a branch of the exec uh, part of the executive branch. It's pretty uh, centralized at that point. Right. Right. There wasn't really even the illusion of it being a separate entity. All right. Cool. So one of the other interesting things of 1863 is the $100 and $500 national bank notes. This was the first time they were issued. They featured John Trumbull's paintings, two of the most famous ones, I believe, the Declaration of Independence and the Surrender of General Burgoyne. Now, these original paintings both hang in the U.S. Capitol, and having something like that on the back of currency I think is rather cool, at least compared to some of the, at least the $1 bill with the Illuminati pyramid and whatever else it's got on the back of it currently. And then in 1865 is when the U.S. Secret Service was established. And again, their role originally was to deter counterfeiting. That was, I believe, a role they held primarily for quite some time. They didn't become the president's or the executive branches or even just high-level politician bodyguards in general for quite some quite some time after that, I believe. Really gotta wonder exactly how the Secret Service got the name Secret Service. Like they they allow the first the the biggest supporter of the idea to name it. That's such a dramatic name for for dudes who hunt down counterfeiters. Right. By this pin here, I'm not sure when this pin dated from, but it doesn't seem like the name itself is recent. So then in 1869, we have George Washington appearing on the one dollar bill. This is the first time, apparently, that George Washington's portrait has appeared on, at least on paper money. And then 1877, Congress mandates that the uh, U.S. Department of the Treasury is the only organization that is allowed to engrave and print notes, bonds, and other U.S. securities. Although at that point, they're still doing it for separate banks, not just the Federal Reserve, but it's all the printing's being done by the Treasury. So at what point... Maybe we'll come to this. So who actually handles the money printing now? Aside from, you know, the Federal Reserve just, you know, making it rain. But who's actually doing that actual printing? I believe it's still the Treasury doing it. The, there, there are different Treasury facilities that, that money printer burr, but it is the Treasury doing the printing to the best of my knowledge. Okay. And then the Mint must be them doing the actual coins. Yes. Separate entities there. All right, so then we have in 1878 is when the Treasury issues silver certificates. Um, apparently, legislation directing an increase in the purchase and coinage of silver is what is responsible for the creation of these certificates. I believe that's roughly around the uh, Nevada silver rush. Here's one cool little anecdote here. So apparently in 1881, former U.S. Senator Blanche... Kelso Bruce is the first African-American to have his signature on American paper currency. He becomes the Register of the United States Treasury in 1881. Hmm. I wonder what uh, what party he served as a senator under. And then in 1886, Martha Washington is featured on silver $1 silver certificates in 1886 and the 1896 series. 1890, the U.S. Department of the Treasury begins issuing treasury notes, which uh, in the example given is a $1,000 note. So what are your thoughts on what is the distinction between that and the previous types of notes? Because we had the demand notes in the Civil War, followed then by the U.S. notes. 
So are these are these names like what is even the distinction between these names? Are they just basically rebranding, you know, kind of like trying to start fresh with a better reputation kind of thing? I don't think it's reputation. I think it's a combination of design because because obviously the the names of these notes are printed on like silver certificates have silver stamped on them. Treasury notes have treasury notes stamped on them. So the combination of the the, the the design change obviously precipitates a name change and also the anticipated purpose. The treasury notes are $1,000 increments. That's obviously for very large loans. Sure. And, and other like high-level financial ch- chicanery, whereas the silver certificates are much more Joe Schmo circulation kind of stuff. Right, right. And then move to the 1900s, and look what we have here. 1913, the Federal Reserve Act establishes the Federal Reserve as the, as the nation's central bank and provides for a national banking system that is, quote, more responsive to the fluctuating financial needs of the country. Federal Reserve Board issues new currency called Federal Reserve Notes. Gee, thanks, Woodrow Wilson. You're my hero. You know, Woodrow Wilson kind of resembles... Uh... Who's the dude who wrote the Cthulhu Mythos? Of Lovecraft? Yeah, Lovecraft. He that picture in the newspaper looks a lot like H.P. Lovecraft. I mean, he just looks like a raving lunatic, massive racist, the biggest. Fuck Woodrow Wilson. How do I really feel? Anyway, 1914, first ten-dollar Federal Reserve notes are issued, and these featured Andrew Jackson's face, which again, you know, kind of. They ironic. knew exactly what they were doing. They were just. They were just. Getting their licks in against Andrew Jackson for killing the, the U.S. bank in the previous century. Rubbing it in, huh? I love how that wasn't uh, mentioned at all in this series. I mean, this is just fairly small blurbs. Sure. So then in 1918 was when the first large denomination banknotes, at least the first large Federal Reserve notes, began to be issued. So we had $500 notes, 1000 $5,000 and $10,000 notes. The looks like the $1,000 note featured Alexander Hamilton's portrait. And that note was at least in circulation all the way up through 1969. For some reason, the $10,000 note features Salmon P. Chase, who was a member of Lincoln's cabinet during the Civil War. I do not remember. I believe he was a senator. And then I believe he was also a member of the cabinet. I do not remember exactly what his role was, so I'm not going to attempt to identify that. Uh, Starting in 1928, the U.S. started adding unique serial numbers to every Federal Reserve note. And in 1929, uh, the the appearance of U.S. banknotes were all modified to uh, reduce manufacturing costs and also standardized designs. Which, which the the idea of which was to reduce the uh, the variation of banknotes in circulation, so it was easy to tell what was legit and what wasn't. To keep in mind, this is while banknotes are still being issued by different Federal Reserve banks. Like the the example given is Cleveland, Ohio. So obviously, if each different bank has its own unique notes besides just the name stamped on it, that could get pretty confusing pretty quickly. I'm not exactly sure why, but I'm really partial to the design of that twenty dollar bill. It does kind of have that whole Gilded Age aesthetic to it, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I really like. I'm for some reason the font and like the the styling of the Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland. That specific text is like just does it for me. I don't know why. 
And then, let's see, in 1934, this is ridiculous, but the treasurer of the United States issued $100,000 gold certificates to Federal Reserve banks in order to settle large transactions. Now, these did not circulate in the public and, for some ungodly reason, featured Woodrow Wilson's picture. H.P. Lovecraft on a $100,000 bill. All right, uh, 1942, the uh, Bureau of Engraving and Printing, which is a, uh, a subdivision of the Treasury, prints silver certificates and Federal Reserve notes with Hawaii stamped on the reverse of the bill. These are only circulated in Hawaii, and the uh, the Hawaii stamp and also the brown seal on the front and the specific serial numbers differentiate these Hawaii notes from other standard notes. And uh, the purpose of this is to declare is for them to be easily declared valueless if the Japanese took Hawaii, which was obviously a major concern at that point in World War Two. Interesting. What was the thought process here? So if Japan did take over Hawaii. What, were they going to try to manipulate the money supply somehow? What would they be doing with it? My immediate guess is that they would confiscate the U.S. dollars and use them in transactions. Because obviously, I don't, I don't think there's anything that would not allow them to counterfeit the money. I think it would just be a source of financing. My, my guess is that if, if that's the case, that means U.S. dollars are more in demand in the world market than Japanese yen. Or maybe to issue the spies or what have you. I don't know. Sure. All right. So next up, in 1945, the Federal Reserve issued a $500 bill featuring President William McKinley. These circulated for roughly two decades and apparently still remain legal tender. If you can find one, they are exceedingly rare for my like two minutes of research. Then in 1956, following a 1955 law, In God We Trust began appearing on all banknotes, starting with the 1957 $1 silver certificates, and then followed by the 1963 series of Federal Federal Reserve notes. In 1963, Congress prohibits the redemption of currency for gold. The, uh, the beginning of the end, ladies and gentlemen. So is this... Because, well, actually, this had to have been pretty close to the start of Vietnam, right? So this this is well after the Bretton Woods Agreement, where the U.S. was promising to to uh, redeem U.S. dollars for gold, basically internationally. And I think this was in, re- re- in response to countries doing that a lot and draining the U.S.'s gold reserves. Apparently, France was a, was a, big, uh, a big perpetrator of that. I don't understand the rationale there, unless in the the only the only thing I get to come up with, not that I know much about this issue, is just France having a massive chip on their shoulder after getting their asses saved in World War Two, because they they were extremely nationalistic in the in the aftermath of World War Two, which I assume is just wounded pride. I mean, how we went into Vietnam for the French, which honestly I question why exactly that was done, except to try to keep them buttered up in, in NATO or get them back into NATO. I mean, France was probably 200 years later still trying to use the we've saved you against the British. So they were eating baguettes and being assholes. Anyway, so then let's see. In 1969, the Federal Reserve and the Treasury announced that banknotes in denominations of $500, $1,000, $5,000, and $10,000 
would all be discontinued due to lack of use. They were last issued in 1969, though they hadn't been printed since 1945. Now, I can totally see why they weren't being used. It doesn't seem like most of these were really intended for widespread circulation to begin with. But if you think about it, in what situation, even in modern times, would make sense to be carrying a $1,000 bill, a $5,000 bill, or even a $10,000 bill? How often, even if we didn't have credit cards, like assume plastic doesn't exist, in what situation would you be carrying a $1,000 bill? To uh, go to a casino? I mean, if you're a high roller, the average person isn't spending anywhere near $1,000 at a casino. Appliance shopping? Car shopping? Sure. Yeah. For big purchases, yes. But again, but that's if credit doesn't also, like, if, if credit cards don't exist, but then if credit doesn't exist as well. Well, I mean, even if credit exists, you may have gotten the uh, credit as an advance, especially especially for especially for uh, card payments. But I, I got a loan to purchase a car in a private sale once, and the bank just sent me a check for the value of the loan. Interesting. Then in 1971, United States notes were discontinued because apparently they no longer served any function that was not already met by Federal Reserve notes. Followed by 1976, when the $2 note was reintroduced. This was on the 233rd anniversary of Thomas Jefferson's birth, and as commemoration, the $2 Federal Reserve note was reintroduced featuring a vignette of Trumbull's painting, The Signing of the Declaration of Independence. Trumbull, Trumbull, Trumbull. I feel like that name is familiar from somewhere else, like some book or movie. All right, 1990, the Western Currency Facility in Fort Worth, Texas, begins printing out the, uh, the dollars. It's the first government facility outside of Washington, Washington D.C. to print Federal Reserve notes. Interesting. So how many other places are currently printing them? I believe there's one in California as well, though I'd have to look it up. Okay. All right. And then in 1996, we saw the first major design change to U.S. currency or U.S. paper money since the 1920s. So there was a series of new counterfeit deterrents being introduced this was first seen with the $100 note in 1966, followed by the 50 in 97, the 20 in 98, and then the 10 and 5 in 2000. This is what this is where the enlarged off-center portraits seem to have originated. And this is also before, you know, I had really any money to speak of. So it was always interesting to see the, the old school dollars, the smaller photos more centered on the bill. And then in... 2003, apparently, this is when... That's when they started recoloring the money to be basically Monopoly money colored. Right. You had, like, all of the embedded stuff, like, let's see, what is this? Embedded security thread that glows green in UV light, a watermark of President Jackson, and a color-shifting numeral 20 in one of the corners. But this is basically the... uh... U.S. currency as we know it, with the slight color variations and the general uh, large offset portraits and so on and so forth, and obviously the security ribbons and watermarks and so on. I got to talk about the new $100 bill, though, because I recently had my first like modern $100 bill for the first time, and holy crap, this thing is the epitome of Monopoly money now. 
Yeah, it's, I mean, it's basically what they've done. Like, the, uh, the denomination, the coloration of the denominations basically match up with the, uh, the different colorations of Monopoly money. The 2013 redesigned $100 note, first, design, first redesigned since 1996. The $100 note features additional security features, including a 3D security ribbon and a color-shifting bell in the inkwell. The new design note also includes a portrait watermark of Benjamin Franklin that is visible from both sides of the note when held to light. Yeah, that that color shifting, or the 3D, I should say, that 3D security ribbon is the weirdest thing to look at because it literally is 3D. It's as, pretty much as good as you can make a, at least that I can picture, making a 3D image on a piece of fucking paper. And that basically brings us up to current. So we didn't get a whole lot into the history of coins themselves, but there have been, I would say, a lot more iterations of the various coins, and we've already gone through a lot of those, so didn't think that was worth belaboring in too much detail. I did want to briefly discuss, we're going to shorten the series, at least what we had and what we originally thought of for the series, in that I think what makes sense is to do next week a relatively quick hopefully overview of crypto as the basically the current bleeding edge of money and then from there we're going to then pick up with either another series or some other shorter or standalone topics the original plan for this series as i was working through it was just continuing to grow longer and longer and longer and longer and longer and having episode like 30 be like episode 20 or part 20 of this history of money series seemed a little bit ridiculous. So I want to be able to get in some other more relevant and less in-depth topics as well. Any thoughts there? I kind of zoned out during that, but uh, I think uh, belaboring a point overall is not a good idea and we should attempt to be entertaining as well as informative. Right. All right, cool. So I'll throw a link to this article we discussed in the show notes as well as a couple others because there's a a variety of other resources detailing U.S. currency, obviously, that's rather interesting as well. A lot of historical focus and a lot of it. Be sure to check out the show notes at mercurydimespodcast.com for those details. All right, and then until next time, take care, everyone. $25 silver for Christmas brews. Thank you for listening to this episode of Mercury Dimes and the Men Who Love Them. Please be sure to subscribe and rate this podcast and be on the lookout for new episodes coming out roughly every week. The podcast website is mercurydimespodcast.com. We are also posting episodes to BitChute and Odyssey. Those channel links are in the show notes. Finally, if you have feedback, suggestions, or just want to shill the hot new crypto that your wife's boyfriend traded you for your Nintendo Switch, Email us at mercurydimes at outlook.com. Until next time, keep stacking that silver, my dudes. We are not investment professionals. This is not real investment advice. If you take action on any of this information without consulting an investment advisor, you're even dumber than we thought. Stop it. Get some help.